Good morning. Um, my name is Ruben Cabrera, and uh, my family and I are members of this church. I'd like to say that I have a dual citizenship or membership as we attend the 11 o'clock service and the 3 p.m. Spanish service. I am scheduled to preach uh, this afternoon in the Hispanic congregation, and the pastor asked me to bring the word to you this morning, so I want to rush to express my gratitude to him for this opportunity. I would like to direct your attention to the book of Matthew, chapter 6, Matthew chapter 6, and today we are going to be looking at verses 19 to 34, Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 to 34, and as we approach this text, let us be reminded that this is the infallible word of God. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where the thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon or money. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life and what you will eat and what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air, are neither they neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And, and why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field and how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon, in all his glory, was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven... Will he not much more clothe you, O oh, you of little faith? Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, and what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek, seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious. About tomorrow, for tomorrow, will be anxious for itself, sufficient for the day, is its own trouble. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for giving us the opportunity to come to this place to praise you and to hear from you. 
It is an act of worship predicated on our dependence on you. Father, I pray that you bless this time, that, that you would help me, that you would speak to me, that you would speak through me. I humbly ask that you would overcome my humanity, my imperfections, and my shortcomings. Father, I pray that you speak to your people, to your flock, to your sheep. We all need you, Father. And you have a word for us this morning. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the word of God is clear. When he teaches that our battle as Christians, our battle as believers is three-dimensional. Paul tells us in the book of Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 3, that there are three enemies of the soul, the flesh, the devil, and the world. And both the Old Testament and the New Testament are rather explicit in emphasizing the goal of this three-dimensional enemy, our destruction. On one extreme, Paul mentions our internal enemy, the flesh, which is our sinful nature. It is an enemy that we must fight on a daily basis. You see, we were once enslaved to this internal enemy. Nevertheless, uh, we are now redeemed people. But as redeemed people, although no longer slaves, we still struggle with this internal enemy. On the other extreme, Paul mentions our external enemy, the world. And when the Bible refers to the world, it is referring to not the planet, but, but the spiritual system that governs the planet. Uh, it is the worldview, the perspective, the pleasures and the passions and the treasures that frequently pull us in. But Paul places an agent in between this internal and external enemy. He places the Satan, the prince of the air, the prince of this world, the devil. And the scriptures, the narrative of scripture is, is very clear. And we can observe and we can see that, that the devil is heavily involved with our internal enemy and with the external enemy. It is the devil who uses our sinful nature to tempt us. And it is also the devil who uses worldly attractions to entice us. And Jesus in chapter 6 wants us to be mindful of these two pressures. These two temptations led by the devil. In verses 1 to 18, he, he teaches us how our internal enemy, the flesh, often is used to tempt us even in our piety. He wants us to be mindful and beware of the temptation of displaying an artificial godliness, displaying an artificial righteousness to be seen by men. For our ego is constantly seeking to be extolled and seeking to be glorified. It is an internal enemy that we must resist. 
Brothers and sisters, we can lie and we can deceive those who see us sometimes. But we cannot deceive the one whose eyes are upon us always. And now in verses 19 to 34, Jesus wants to tell us about this other enemy, the world. And this one is incredibly subtle because we live in it. Now, we, we interact in it. We relate to each other in it. And, and in one way or another, we are benefited from it. And Jesus knew what he was talking about. Not only because of his divinity, but because in his humanity he was tempted in the same way. The prince of the air, the Satan, took Jesus before he began his ministry to the pinnacle of a mountain. And in there he showed him the kingdoms of the world. And, and Satan told Jesus, Jesus, here are your gods, prosperity, power, and security. They are yours only if you worship me. And the question that is before us this morning is the following. Is Satan dared to tempt Jesus with the things of this world? What makes us think that he will not do that to us? So Jesus wants us to be aware of this. Because Satan is constantly making the same offer. Christians, here are your gods. Prosperity, power, and security. They are yours only if you worship me. And Satan knows you better than you know yourself. He has been doing the same thing from the beginning, starting at the Garden of Eden. His anthropology is unmatched. And he knows that every human being is the same. He knows that every human being longs for the same things. And he has been successful in this endeavor. He has been so successful at this that he has persuaded the world to Christianize these gods. And that sounds strange, doesn't it? You may be wondering, and, and how have we Christianized these gods when we have concluded that power, prosperity, and security are signs of God's favor over a person or over a nation. God never, ever promised us prosperity. And he never promised us power, and he never promised us security in the here and now. And I know what you're thinking, Jeremiah 29, 11 has nothing to do with this. That is for another sermon. We can talk about it later. But the truth of the matter is that God never promised these things, yet Satan, with his cunning nature, has made us believe that. And that is why Jesus wants his disciples and he wants us today to be mindful of the dynamics of this temptation and its consequences. And if we look at verse 25, Jesus masterfully connects his argument from 19 to 24 with his argument from verse 26 to 34. Listen to what he says. 
Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? This therefore is there for a reason. And it's to connect the latter with the former or the former with the latter. See, some of us have read and analyzed this passage in isolation from verses 26 to 34. But, but Jesus wants us to consider the argument in its totality. And he does so because he wants us to identify the cause and the cure for our anxiety. And how our anxiety is intrinsically connected to our relationship with this world. So, in verses 19 to 24, Jesus gives us the cause of our anxiety. And he tells us in these passages that the cause of our anxiety is treasuring that which we cannot retain. He is telling us in these passages that, that, that our anxiety is produced by this desire to treasure that which cannot be retained. And there is a great distinction, brothers and sisters, be, be, between what we own and what we treasure. You see, what we own can be for our good. And we can enjoy it. And we can have a good time with it. But when we treasure what we own, what we own owns us. And that is what Jesus wants us to understand. And he is telling us to treasure what you cannot retain is idolatry. You see, an idol is something that we treasure to give us that which only God can give us. Meaning, identity, and purpose. The locus classicus of idolatry, and I know what you're thinking, what in the world is locus classicus? You can use that phrase in, you know, at your Thanksgiving gathering to sound smart. Locus Classicus is the most important text on idolatry in Scripture. It's Romans chapter 1, verses 21 to 25. And listen to what Paul says regarding this issue of idolatry. For although they knew God, they did not what? Honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. Listen to the following. And exchanged, ha, huh, exchanged glory, the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal men, birds, animals, and creeping things. Verse 25. And they exchanged the truth, not only the glory, but also the truth of God for a lie. 
and they worshipped and they served the creature rather than the creator. Paul is telling us that idolatry is to exchange our devotion to God for something or for someone. And the problem, my brothers and sisters, with idolatry is that like cancer, it affects our whole being. It affects our hearts. It affects our minds. But it also affects our will. And Jesus in this passage wants to give us three diagnostic tests for us to identify the idols of the heart. He wants us to identify that which we are treasuring, that which is demanding our devotion, that which is controlling our will. So the first diagnostic test focuses on the heart. And he wants to focus on the heart because the heart is the epicenter of your emotions, no? It is the epicenter of our feelings. It is the epicenter of our deepest loyalties. So he begins there. And he tells us this, this morning that if you want to identify that which you treasure, you must examine what you love. We find that in verses 19 to 21. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys or where thieves do not break in and steal. For, for, listen, brothers and sisters, for where your treasure is, there. See that? Where your treasure is, locate your treasure and you will find your heart. Why? Because the heart pursues what it treasures. The heart pursues what it loves. And if we are honest with each other, the idols of our hearts are derived from these worlds, gods, prosperity, power, and security. When we talk about power, we're talking about what? Recognition. We're talking about control. We're talking about autonomy. We're talking about positions. When we talk about prosperity, we're talking about materialism. We're talking about abundance. We're talking about riches. And when we talk about security, we're talking about protection, comfort, and health. And we pursue these things because in them we find meaning. St. Augustine used to call sin misplaced or disordered love. It is a love that has been misplaced. It is a love that is disordered. But Jesus tells us not only that our heart is in the things that we love and in the things that we treasure. Catch this. He's also telling us that these things that we treasure are temporal. They are fleeting. They will pass away. They are not lasting. They are here today, are gone tomorrow. They are subjected to decay, to be destroyed, to be stolen, to be corrupted. And the reason these things produce anxiety in us is because we fear losing them. 
are not getting them. If we are honest with ourselves, the reason why we are anxious about these things is because we are afraid of losing them or not getting them. Which is why John tells us in 1 John chapter 2, verse 15 and 17, do not love the world. Do not love the world or the things of this world. Verse 17, and the world is what? Passing away along with his desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. Anxiety is a product of loving what cannot give you, what only God can give you, but also knowing that these things that we treasure cannot be retained. Let me quote David Foster Wallace. He was a postmodern professor, university professor. And he said these words. If we are honest, there is no atheism. Everyone worships something. The only option we have is what we are going to worship. The only reasonable reason to worship a spiritual God is that all of the gods will eat you alive. If you worship money, you will never have enough. If you worship beauty and your body, you will always feel ugly and unattractive. If you worship power, you will end up feeling weak and fearful. And you will need more and more power over others to numb your fears. If you worship intellect, you, know, you will always feel dumb. Because you're not as intelligent as you appear. The malicious thing about all these forms of worship and idolatry is that they happen at the unconscious level. We are wired this way. Unless you have a God that can give you what you seek, you will destroy yourself. Ironically, David Foster Wallace committed suicide at age 46. What do you treasure? What are you anxious about? What is it that moves your affections more than anything in this world? Recognition, control, autonomy, positions, riches, abundance, comfort, protection. Brothers and sisters, Jesus is telling us this morning, examine what you love more than God. And there you'll find the cause of your anxiety. The second diagnostic test that Jesus presents us in this text has to do with the mind. He moves from the, from the heart to the mind. And he's been very careful here, very strategic, like a good physician, no? He's making sure that he has a holistic treatment for us. And in order for do that, in order for him to do that, he needs to evaluate the whole thing. So he's telling us that in order for you to identify what you treasure, not only you need to examine what you love, but you must examine what you desire. Verses 22 to 23, the eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. Jesus wants us to understand that covetousness begins its journey through the eye. 
that your eye looks at the things that your mind lusts for. And we love the things that we love, do not have, but wish to have. We covet or desire what we love. And this is why he, he's just in this weird illustration. It's just rare. Because he wants you to understand that the eye is the window to your soul. Is the lamp that either lightens your body or darkens it. He wants us to evaluate what we're coveting and understand that the reason why there is darkness in you is because covetousness is worldliness. This is why John continues his argument in 1 John chapter 2. But now in verse 16 he tells us all that is in the world. And then he qualifies that. The desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but from the world. Why do we covet? Because we are not satisfied with God's provision. Even though we have empirical evidence that let us know that what we covet never satisfies. But Jesus doesn't leave it there. He begins in the heart, moves to the mind. And now he wants us to understand the magnitude of this disease. He wants you to understand, he wants me to understand that this is more serious than we thought. So now he moves to the will. Verse 24, he's telling us, in order for you to know what you are treasuring, examine what you worship. And he tells us, no one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one or love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. Listen, brothers and sisters, you cannot serve God and mammon. You cannot love God and money. And the word that Jesus is using here that has been translated as serve is the word doulos, which means slave. Huh. He's telling us that you cannot be a slave of God and a slave of this world. You cannot multi-serve. Why not? Because both are demanding our total surrender. We're either surrendered to the things of this world, or we're fully surrendered to God, and Jesus is telling us, you must decide. You cannot have one foot in the world and one foot here in the kingdom of God. That's not how it works. Which is why. This is interesting. When Satan tempted Jesus and took him to the pinnacle of the mountain, he said, here are your gods, prosperity, power, all that is yours, only if you tie your will to mine. And that is what Satan is doing. And Jesus, in his love, in his compassion, he wants us to be aware of this pressure. 
You want these gods? It will cost you everything. Because you will have to worship it. In fact, you worship it. And it is a loving rebuke. Can't do that. You have to serve me. You have to serve God. Jesus is telling us that the cause of our anxiety is our enslavement to something that can not only give us what God can give us, but is demanding our total surrender, our total loyalty. What you love is what you desire or covet, and what you covet controls you. But, 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 but I want you to know something, because this issue of treasuring things here on earth is very pervasive. And it expands to many arenas in our lives, including the way we view politics. And one of the greatest preachers, British preachers, Martin Lloyd-Jones, once said something that I believe is particularly relevant to us in the midst of this craziness. Listen to what he says. When election time comes, do we find ourselves believing that one party's point of view is entirely correct and the other completely wrong? If that is what we think, let me suggest that we are accumulating treasures here on earth. If we think the truth exists in one party or another. If we analyze our motives, we will discover that we are protecting something, eager to have something, or anxious to lose something. What is the reason? What is it when we are really honest with ourselves that is behind our political opinions? If you are sincere, you will realize that behind these reasons... There are treasures that you have accumulated that you do not want to lose or are interested in acquiring. To what extent are our feelings involved in this matter? And if you think this guy is crazy, look at Facebook, Twitter. He's been prophetic here. He's telling the truth. We're witnessing that, and some of us are participating in it. He continues, how much violence, how much anger, how much contempt, passion. Apply that test, and again we find that the feeling is aroused by a concern, aroused by a concern with accumulating treasures here on earth. Are we looking at these things with a kind of detachment and objectivity or not? And if we are not, if we are not, It is because we are concerned with accumulating treasures here on earth. Let me remind you, I'm sure you know this, uh, that the kingdom of God has nothing to do with what happens here. That the kingdom of God will continue. That his agenda will continue. And that the gates of hell will never prevail against his church. 
So why are we so concerned? Why are we so anxious? Why are we buying into the passions of this world? Brothers and sisters, Jesus is telling us, don't do it. The cause of our anxiety is treasuring that which we cannot retain. But Jesus, in his love, he moves from identifying what is causing our anxiety to now apply the remedy to it. And he gives us the cure for our anxiety in verses 26 to 34. And he's telling us that the remedy or cure for our anxiety is to value that which we cannot lose. Amen? The cure is to value that which we cannot lose. And he offers us a three-pronged cure to this disease. And, and, and the first thing that he tells us is that you must observe his creation. He says that you, you want to cure your anxiety, go to the park, go outside, and look at my creation. Verses 26 and 28 and 29. Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Jesus is inviting us to consider the providence of God. Go to the park. Look at the birds. Have you ever wondered who's feeding them? God does. Who is preserving them? God does. And while you are at it, look at the lilies. Who dresses them? God does. Even Solomon in all his splendor and with all his fortune was never able to dress like I dress the lilies. Then why are you so concerned? He wants us to consider the providence of God. Not only does he want us to observe the creation of God, he also tells us to consider your position. Observe his creation, number two, consider your position. Verse 26b, verse 30. Are you not of more value than they? Verse 30, but if God so clothes the grass of the fields, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Verse 32, for the Gentiles seek all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. Since you saw and observed my creation, and you saw how God provides and God preserves and God cares for them, don't you think that God will take care of you, the crown of his glory? You whom he has saved, you who belong to him, you whom through Christ have direct access to the Father and you can call him Abba. He will take care of you. He will provide for you. Why are you so anxious? He will provide what you need. And here is where our problem lies. Because God promised to provide for our needs, not to give us what our flesh yearns. That is why Jesus in the Lord's Prayer tells the disciples, 
one of the petitions, ask the Father to give you what? Your daily bread. It's the bread that you need, not the car that you want. What you need, not what you want. Sometimes he gives us what we want. And sometimes the worst thing that God can do is to give us what we want. Trust in him. Observe his creation. Consider your position. And lastly, he is telling us to reorient our devotion. Verse 33-34. Seek first the kingdom of God. You see, that is a volitional act. It's an act of the will. You must seek. Second. Third. No, no, no. He says first. Prioritize your seeking. Seek the kingdom of God. And all the things that you are needing will be added to you. Therefore, because of that, do not be anxious. Jesus wants us to change our perspective and begin to think like otherworldly citizens in heaven. Verse 20, he's telling us that we should lay up treasures for ourselves where? In heaven. Paul tells us in Colossians chapter 3, 1 to 4, he is compelling us to seek the things that are of above, where Christ is seated. And in verse 2, he's telling us to set our minds. That is an act of the will. That is our devotion. Jesus is getting in there. He's puncturing our idolatry. And he is saying, reorient your devotion. Worship me. Seek the things that are above. Seek the things of heaven. And in there you will find the cure for your anxiety. The cause of our anxiety is our clinging to this world by wanting to treasure the things that we cannot retain. And the cure for it is to value the things that we cannot lose. But again, brothers, I think that it would be a crime for us to ignore Jesus' sense of humor. Because Jesus had a sense of humor. And in verse 27, listen to what he says. And which of you, which of you, because he knew that there were, you know, smart people in the room. <laughs> you know, like, like Peter. That, that, that believe that, that, you know, you, you can work your way up to peace. <laughs> and he says, and, and, and which of you, by being anxious can add a single hour to his span of life. In other words, anxiety does not work. Brothers and sisters, locate your fears, and there you will find your gods. Reorient your devotion to heaven, and there you will find the one who can only give you what your soul desires. Meaning, identity, and a peace that surpasses all understanding. In heaven, your Father, who loves you. And I close with this. First Peter 5, 6-9. Humble yourselves. Get off the throne. Relinquish control. Humble yourself. Under what? The mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, 
Verse 7, I love it. I love this. Casting all your anxieties. He can take them. He can take them. Casting all your anxieties. Why? Because he cares for you. He cares for you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for your truth. And we thank you for your promise. Thank you for Jesus Christ, not only for his sacrifice, but for his life and for his teaching. And sometimes his teaching um, convicts us. And that is why you left us your word. We cast our anxieties to you, Father, because we know that you care for us. We love you, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.